Welcome to the Perpetual Stew. I'm Matthew Goodman. And I'm Sarah Merle. And this fifth and penultimate episode in our uh, ongoing series, What the Fuck is Wrong with Florida? Florida. We're going to be talking about the new bills in Florida that uh, are making changes to higher education, specifically banning certain majors and uh, changing the way that Florida universities hire professors. Um, So, Sarah, what majors are going to be banned under the the, uh, under the proposed bill? I this. A lot of things. Okay, let me just, a little background here. Uh, House Bill 999, introduced by State Rep Alexander Andrade, uh, Republican, obviously, echoes proposals from uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. The bill would ban majors or minors in critical race theory and gender studies in subjects like intersectionality. HB 999 also builds on previous legislation from 2002 that created a five-year review process for tenured faculty in Florida, which passed last year. According to the PCS for HB 999, uh, critical race studies, critical ethnic studies, radical feminist theory, radical gender theory, uh, queer theory, and social critical social justice would also be on the chopping block. So they would like ban <laughs> half of the classes I took. Yeah, like it's uh, you know. <sighs> I mean, I, I'm just going to be open. Uh, I'm laying my cards on the table in full transparency. I did, I didn't file the paperwork, but I did the equivalent of a minor in uh, women and gender studies while an undergrad. And uh, to be even more full disclosure, it was life changing in the best possible way. So I, was I am biased. Say, like all, I am also biased because like we didn't have, I didn't take anything that was specifically that. It intersected with a lot of these concepts, uh, and it changed my life, and it like opened up my worldview. And I mean, ultimately, you and I both know that this is what this is all about. So, like one of the greatest courses I ever took was called Writing, Eating, and the Construction of Gender. Awesome. And, oh my God, amazing. And I was also taking meditation at the time. And I told my uh, instructor for meditation about that. And she taught me how to do food and eating meditation, um, which is, by the way, unbelievable. And people are like, that sounds like a fake thing. I'm like, no, it is very real. (laughs) And it is like, okay, if you do it with a romantic partner, here's a little bit of dating advice. You can do eating meditation with uh, a partner and it's kind of sexy so look it up i refuse to engage with that it sounds like wet and messy and that gives me nightmares um but no, real no, quick you get to choose the food if passed uh hb 999 would also allow the boards to delegate hiring power to presidents of the institution mm-hmm. but they would still have to approve the hiring decisions mm-hmm. and uh remember the boards of trustees for state universities are appointed by the governor. <laughs> so that's how you wind up in a situation where uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist in North Carolina winds up blocked by the conservative board of trustees at a state college from getting tenure. Um, oh. That's what you wind up with, that the board – after be of trustees gets appointed by the governor and then they vote for the president who will then, you know, approve or vote up and down for these uh, hiring decisions. So we're not just talking about getting rid of certain majors. We're also talking about literally designing ways to blacklist specific academics um, for their views. So if you want to talk about cancel culture, I mean, if we're, if you want to talk about Nazi Germany, like, I mean, I know that's such a 
overused and tired and melodramatic way to talk about this, but like, you know, not only like we're, we're talking about people who are going to be, their social media is going to be monitored for being critical to uh, conservative ideology. And like, if you think about this, like there are so many prestigious like uh, sports programs in, in Florida state universities. And, you know, if you're an athlete and you get, you know, a handful of offers and mm-hmm. Florida is your best one, like then you're just stuck. Like, it's not like you can just like, you're going to get your degree elsewhere. Like you're stuck in an institution. Like imagine you are a black football player or like any sort of like black athlete who like comes from an impoverished area. You're like one of the, you know, hundreds of stories we hear about every year of just like, you're poor, but you're great at sports. And like, you lift yourself out of poverty, but like then you're a black student in a state where they are not allowed to teach you about like black history. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that's so insane. I mean, it's, it's, uh, or or you're uh, just anybody you're just, you're a talented person in the state. And there are a lot of scholarships for undergrad that are state specific, that they're only for residents of that state. Right. So if you just happen to be born in Florida and you're gifted, you and you take advantage of that, you will not be able to be taught entire fields of knowledge. Yeah. Right. And I'll use myself as an example that the reason why so many of these courses were groundbreaking for me and, you know, you might say gender, like you're a cis straight man, right? True. But I'm also an Asian man and an adoptee. So the intersection of race and sex and gender and and, and all these things together they move in ways and they interact in ways that are surprising and volatile um, and deeply impacted my life. So learning about things like the black experience, about learning about the gay experience, trans experience, the history of these things. I wrote a paper on the limiting of Asian masculinity throughout American history. Like, the, all of these things combined everything from critical race theory to critical gender theory to radical feminism. Yeah. I would not, uh, uh, I could have gone with these questions to one of my professors and I did at the time and asked them about this and ha- shared my ideas and they would not have been able to help me. Yeah. Like this is so incredibly damaging to I mean, it's- anybody with a complex identity. I was just going to say, you you took the words right out of my mouth, which is like the, this is wholly intended to other people who fall outside of this unbelievably narrow conception of an acceptable identity. Mm-hmm. And then let's say I, I bust out of Florida, you know, get my, get, get my graduate degree somewhere else, but I want to go back to my community to teach, or maybe the only jobs available in my field are happen to be in Florida. Suddenly I can't enter the academy. Right. Like it just, it seems so hateful because I'm going to be honest. Like I, I live, I very much live a life of the mind, like engaging with these ideas is like the thing I love the most. And like when I was a student, when I was a child, like it would have felt so alienating to bring questions to people I looked up to and I trusted to share knowledge with me and, and, and ideas with me 
I would not have known about these laws or really understood them when I was a kid. I would just feel rejected and sad and alone. Um, And like, it just, I know it seems like, oh, those, you know, tenured professors, like, oh, those, you know, they seem so powerful, but it's not really about them. I'm going to be honest. Yep. Right. Well, I was, I was going to say like uh, the, the, we talked about this before we started the show, but the idea of reviewing a tenured professor every five years, like that's actually a pretty good idea in a lot of cases where like some tenured professors get that tenure and then they start acting up fucking students wise. You know what I mean? Like that's not a bad idea. Um, I have a feeling that their review process would probably not include, uh, you know, student respect problems. Uh, but, you know, um, what is also really bothersome about this is that, like, we know that this student, that the tenure evaluation process is not going to include effectiveness, like learning effectiveness in the way that a professor would value it. They're going to be making this judgment based on like the overall, I don't know, uh, aggregate earning in- income earned by graduates of different, um, you know what I'm saying? Like this, this, even, even <clears throat> this process, which sounds like it's a, a little nugget of a good idea is inevitably going to be used to, <laughs> Make the humanities not exist so these kids don't grow up with too much goddamn compassion, you know? So, so you give you an idea. Like, so right now there's, uh, in, Pen- in, in uh, Pennsylvania, there's a review of a professor. Her name is Amy Wax. Yes. And she is under investigation and could be possibly sanctioned. And yeah. this, the right is cla- declaiming this as cancel culture. Yeah. She is tenured. Um, but I would note she's a good example of someone who would be actually review of her tenure would be really useful every five years. And I'm going to say, I do not believe this is an example of cancel culture. I believe that Amy Wax's, Professor Wax's uh, statements um, and beliefs fall significantly outside of what we could consider protected academic discourse. And I'll give you a quote. Quote, I think the United States is better off with fewer Asians and less Asian immigration which he then followed, which she, and this was in January. Um, This is not a new statement. In 2019, she said, quote, our country will be better off with more whites and fewer non-whites. Okay. So I want to make this very clear that like this, her, what she's saying falls way, way, way outside. I'm not even going to say the academic mainstream, but outside of any accepted area of discourse. I'm sorry to the viewers at home or listeners who think that I'm not reacting. It's because my face oh. was contorted in yeah. such horror um, that this is a person that is allowed to have any contact with students at all. Or any people. Or <laughs> humans. Yeah. Or human. But like, that's a fair thing to review someone's tenure over for sure. teachers not teaching their classes. But like, no, and, and people are just like, well, you know, she as long as she's okay with interacting with her students in classes, I'm like, if my students found out, if my white students found out that I said, I think that we should have the America we better off with fewer whites. <laughs> or, also, <laughs> like, what? How goddamn delusional do you have to believe that it is possible for a person who said that with their whole fucking chest into a you know, uh, where is that quote from? To a room, a room of people? That was a conference. That was a room of academics. 
Woo! If someone has the the audacity, the comfort, uh, mm-hmm. the untouchable feeling that they can say that with their whole chest in a room full of their peers, you are on goddamn powerful military grade drugs to think that that person is then going to go into the classroom and be able to treat Asian students with a scrap of the same level of respectability as her white students. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh. And, and we're not dumb. We know. We yeah. know. I was just going to say, like, if you think like when I know when I talk to a racist person and I know they're racist within like just like little micro, you know what I mean? Like little Mm -hmm. microaggression statements or whatever. And uh, they talk about never having heard about this experience from their black friends. I'm like, well, first of all, that's how I know those people don't exist. And secondly, like if you if if person of a marginalized identity has not felt comfortable enough to share the very common experience to marginalized people of being othered in some along the continuum of hateful way Mm -hmm. like yeah this is kind of the problem is you're so racist that you probably invalidate a lot of people's experiences of being othered and and discriminated against so then people stop telling you about it yeah and and let's say you're in Amy Wax's class. Let's say you're in Florida. This bill passes. You're in Florida. You're in a class with a professor like Amy Wax. And you have, being a good student, you have sought out the forbidden knowledge. You've read critical race theory. You've read... Not only are you no one there, because most students won't have any idea what you're talking about, there'll be no one on faculty to back you up. You'll just be alone. And... In my classes, the scariest thing for a student to do is express an opinion, and I see it in their faces, that they're not sure if anyone's going to support them. Yep. Right? And that's why it's so important as the professor, as the instructor, to support and validate everyone's opinion. Not saying that I agree with them, but validate their right for their opinion to be treated with respect and dignity and to be heard. And it's also why I have to spend so much time engaging with ideas and theories that I don't necessarily agree with, but to understand them in full so that if a student brings it up, I can actually help the rest of the class understand and engage productively with it. Because but because I, what yeah. is, what's the teacher's job is to provide context, right? Mm-hmm. Like to provide like, you know, my favorite teacher ever, Mr. Saunders, was this uh, British dude from Liverpool and our the school that I went to was like very fancy, which is so funny to me because the thing that people paid extra for was to have small enough classes and long enough. We had 90 minute block classes, but like 90 minutes is enough time for a room full of 10 to 20, 16 year olds to absorb process, discuss and reabsorb like in a more sophisticated way, like a novel idea. And that was like their whole job was like, it was all the Socratic learning shit, blah, blah, blah. But like, I learned as much during that about talking over the the holes, the fallacies in my own thinking about these things with my peers as guided by a teacher. And I think that's why I get so angry at like this idea that teachers are brainwashing because fucking teachers wish like they fucking wish they could hold a little, you know, a, a stopwatch in front of us until we mm-hmm. get hypnotized or whatever. But like, you know, 
by eliminating this as even a point of discussion, right? Like it, it would be like just putting a, a, a sticky note over like two thirds of your glasses, right? And like, mm-hmm. that's all you have to look through. And then you get out, like Matt, like I also am recoiling at the broad disservice this does to Florida's brain drain. Like Indiana has the same problem. Like Florida's going to have an insane brain drain and it's going to become one of these like, you know, you'll go to Florida for for these jobs. You can work at a something beach or resort related or Disney related, or you'll be working in elder care. And those will be the things, service or elder care. That'll mm-hmm. become the state's job economy. Mm-hmm. This bill also goes so far, and DeSantis believes it would allow states to, quote, prevent certain worldviews from being promoted when making academic hiring decisions by faculty committees. So it'll become no black people. It'll become no minorities. Like essentially because of the way that Trump dipshits think, which is like, if you have a Hispanic last name, we can't Mm -hmm. trust you to rule fairly as a judge on like uh, immigration cases, like Mm -hmm. because they're have the mentality of nine-year-olds. So then it'll just become, well, we can't hire any, black teachers because they might promote critical race theory. And it's like, I teach, I teach economics. I don't, you know what I mean? Like I, I do chemistry. So. But now, now you hear they're going after quote unquote woke banks. Like, yeah. like the culture war has no front. It's just everywhere. everywhere everything everywhere all the time is culture war. Uh, <laughs> did you catch did you catch AOC talking about this on uh, the congressional floor like the fucking boss that she always is but she's like let's what 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 is woke like what what is this word woke because the thing that they were talking was a bunch of the bill that they were discussing in which woke got brought up was a labor rights bill and she's like so so woke is like the ability to vote on issues that affect all of your coworkers like woke is you know like went through all these like very cut and dry um, procedural things that like matter to every single person on earth. And it's like, we, first of all, the great thing is don't worry about Gen Z. They're not fucking falling for it. Like they're not fucking falling for it for a second. But this idea of wokeness is so fucking stupid and all it will do stupid ideas broadly applied, make everyone dumber. And Florida is not doing great on that front in the first place. So like Mike judge may have just been painting a a future portrait of Florida with idiocracy. Uh, it's really unfortunate, but at least the president in idiocracy was trying to do a good job. <laughs> I, I, I want to note that he's actually trying real hard. Um, president Camacho. Yeah, I just want to. I just want to make that clear. I would have rather had President Camacho over President Trump. Um, but like, I think about the long-term effects of this, right? So one of the things with ideas, learning about, especially in college, uh, running into ideas you don't run into in conversation, you know, in in normal everyday life, is that it changes the way that you then engage with ideas throughout the rest of your life, right? That um, especially it's running into ideas you didn't agree with walking in, right? I I don't know about you, but I like radically changed some of my worldviews. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Like, what the hell kind of person would you be if you didn't, if you went to college and none of your views changed? Well, uh, uh, for for me and probably you as well, too, like, the thing that critical thinking does is it makes you aware of all the influences upon your own thinking. Yeah. So, 
you are not you you have you are done away with with this idea that you're some like brilliant genius who's coming up with great ideas in a vacuum you know what i mean like you take stuff like media literacy where you're like oh shit like it you know like the everything that i have consumed in this has influenced my worldview and then you start you know sort of taking apart the world in that way too and that can become dangerous because i <laughs> was a republican when i went to college and my parents love that and then i got contact with like real people especially like you know poor people one or two thrown in there oh, yeah. and all of my ideas about poverty sort of just crumbled um that's a huge i have to say especially for kids from privileged backgrounds that is so important mm -hmm. it's so important it was critically important for me uh, I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say because I was, you know, I grew up uh, privileged, but like, I also realized that the ultra rich kids were even fucking further out there. They Correct. were, like, some of them, like, thank God, got it and like figured it out, and some of them, their reaction was to become even more like monocle. Yeah, um, I was gonna say you the 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 dividing line here is that you and I were new coat that fits kids every year, like. Yeah. There, I, I always call this like braces, new coat, rich, where you're not rich, but like you get to go get your teeth fixed and you're warm in the winter and you don't really think about it a lot. Yeah. Like we still flew commercial flights and correct. Correct. That's exactly it. Yes. I make it clear. Like, you know, we, we were not, I have childhood experiences of being in an airport for hours and hours because our <laughs> flight was, was overbooked or yeah. delayed or whatever. And like our big splurge was, I got to eat some Nathan's hot dogs. <laughs> I was going to say, like, listen, when we rented cars on vacation, we still got a Kia Sorento. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> right. And, uh, uh, you know, there were there was also a funny thing. I was talking to a friend, like, there were, like, three levels of Disney vacation. Uh, the four. <laughs> First, you don't go, get to go. Second, you go, but you stay, like, at a hotel, like, 45 minutes away. And you go Third, to all the free stuff. Yeah. Third, you stay at a hotel in Disney. Yep. And fourth... You do now they have the they added the fourth level, then you can like pay for like premium access to everything yeah. and you get like a personal guide. Yeah. Like I was a level three. Like yeah. we stayed at a hotel. <laughs> same, same. Right in the park. <laughs> um we were we but we stood online like everyone else. Yeah. My imagining my parents looking at the current Disney prices as they both just like Fully being able to afford it, just like have a panic attack about just like, what I don't. What do you mean it's going to cost twelve thousand dollars to take Shh. our two children? What? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you're just like, you know, maybe we're not going to do that. Um, <laughs> and so, I think for some people, they they just don't think you go to Disney World and you you don't wait in line and you have yeah. someone and. What these studies also do, though, is they also give you access to experiences. Like, you could then go do a Disney. Yeah. You know, without those things. But you could not then go and, you know, be a black kid growing up in Baltimore. You don't yeah. have actual access to that experience. But you can learn about it and change your mind through the work you do and the people you meet. Uh, the the socio-emotional learning thing in the real world is... A great example is I worked at a very, very white place and they showed us the thing that they do is they train all the warehouse and office people like in the same. There's a couple things that they, they put you together for. And 
in that training video, all of the office, the, the, you know, the skit, the people in the skit about the office had very white names and everybody in the warehouse in the skit were named like Tyrone and Carlos. And I was like, I just like offhandedly mentioned to my, um, very, very white hiring manager. I was like, you know, maybe it doesn't matter, but like it is the video makes obvious what kind of person is supposed to work. And she had never considered that for a second. She was just like recreating the world that she knew and like, didn't even think about what, how that would feel to both groups in that room absorbing that video. You know what I mean? (laughs) But, but then that's, that's a minor implication. What if you are a middle manager, a hiring manager, and you have a black employee or a Mexican employee who to you, all you see is a person with a bad attitude. I used to hear this all the time from white bosses about employees of color. And it's like, without that, you're just an asshole who's going to get fired. But you have a little bit of that learning of just like, hey, like what what happened? What's going on? Like it's it probably has nothing to do with their quality of employee, but that they've been like maybe microaggression by shitty Bob for three weeks every single day, you know? Yeah. And you'll actually take, and you have to to take that seriously to understand. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, right. Instead of just like, suck it up, buttercup. Right. Like (laughs) (laughs) it, how to put this Um, for a lot of people, I I, I believe for a lot of people, and I've talked to students about that. Some of my students about this is that like, you know, they view the classes that I took they viewed them at first as sort of ancillary to their major, mm. right? Or even I, at points, like when I first started doing women and gender studies things, I took the, I took it because one of my friends recommended I take it. He said, this professor's great. You'll find it. In, I think you'll find it interesting. I didn't go in with any grand ambition. I just went yep. in because I had a spot in my schedule and it fit. Um, and so, but by the time they come out, it makes them reevaluate everything else they're studying. Yep. And it made me reevaluate everything else I was studying. Right. So I go from like that and I'm just like, shit, I need to, you know, and I I can take something that seemed completely unrelated. So like, you know, I was working in music at the time and the kinds of music I was interested in um, had very certain aesthetics. They were very male dominated. And I really had believed in high school and middle school that um, art forms, particularly in music that also integrated and cared a lot about dance and visual aesthetic were like less pure and less important forms of yep. music. But it was actually through learning about drag and um, the way that certain types of performativity, particularly like physical dress, visual performativity, changed the basically changed the text yes. of the music, right? It made me understand like Madonna. Yes. <laughs> like I understood pop music for the first time instead of reflexively dismissing it. Um, and uh, it, yeah. Usually I have an opposing story to back to follow you up. I had that identical experience where really? I took gen- gender studies and then my, my other degree is in recording industry studies. And um, I was very bought into this idea that women were less interested in, in being musicians that like, uh, and then you go through gender studies and also, you know, having some pretty rad dude professors, like who were like, really, really like women as like, you know, human beings uh, talking about that, like sales cycles of women's music are determined by the industry, right? Yeah. Like 
So it's not that like women are less commercially viable. It's that the industries have ensured that they are less commercially viable. And then I was like, oh my God. And ever since then, like the women portion of my music, you know, musical collection has exploded. And if it, but if it, I, if I hadn't had an adult ask me such a simple question as why do you think that is mm -hmm. like what, what Florida is going to end up having is something like a Jamaican economy. Do you know what I mean? Where uh, in Jamaica, the sources of income is, are so limited and few, right? Like it's an incredibly crime ridden place, which like Florida, we already know has their own problems, but they have a drug problem. They have an illegal alcohol problem, like a home distilling poison problem. <clears throat> and the job market for um, like resort jobs is so intense that like, I mean, people will just do crazy things, which also leads to a lot of exploitation for those jobs. And Florida doesn't seem to understand that much like the last couple Republican um, ideology, um, ideologically based rounds of Republicanism is that like, if you reduce people down to profit without arts, right? Like, like thinking without critical thinking or production without intentional non-production or whatever, whatever, like what you actually end up with is a bunch of walking dead people. <laughs> you also, I, I think, I mean, the bigger issue for me, this is just, you know, as an instructor, is that you can't actually explain some things. Yeah. And so one of the big things they're going after here in these majors are the ones that involve anything critical. And I want to note that the, the like critical studies did emerge uh, uh, out of Marxism. But importantly, what critical studies is generally, if we say critical race theory, it's examining these ideas, meaning race in this case, but you can do critical gender studies in the context of history yeah. and structures. Yeah. So to use the Amy Wax example with immigration, let's say she's right. Let's say that higher levels of Im Asian immigration do lead to worst economic outcomes, right? Let's just, I mean, let's, it's not true, but let's right. grant it. Work lead to worse economic outcomes for the general population of the United States over the last 20 years. What you would do in, in a critical race lens or a critical immigration lens, right? You might look at it and say, what are, what's the history of this? And are there any structural factors that might lead to this particular material outcome? Yeah. Could we improve the material outcome? by changing some of these structures using the knowledge we've gained through history. So note that the even it that it allows you to ask the first first question do does allowing this higher level of Asian immigration lead to more or less economic activity. But the ban would prevent scholarship into the second and I think arguably more important question. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Why is this happening and is there a way to fix it that does not require discrimination? But like Let's look like what is the logical conclusion of that, which is like when you do not when all you need is correlation to assign causation. <laughs> like, like my I took as everyone, Asians are sneaky. Yeah, as everyone does. You know, I took my psych 101 class and uh, my professor, Dr. Chan, uh, was told me my favorite statistic, which is like um, the thing that 
rises um, correlative to ice cream consumption is armed robbery. And that's because ice cream consumption obviously happens more in the in the warmer months. Like armed robbery is often an on foot crime, whatever. Also drowning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So she's like, so the reason that we don't ban ice cream to lower crime rates, to lower armed robbery is because those two things have nothing to fucking do with each other except warm weather. Yeah. By the way, there's a uh, entire website about bad correlation versus causation. They're um, charted. They're all charted. They're all charted, and they are amazing. <laughs> um, I if you if you want a nerdy laugh, look them up. Like when if I'm having a bad day, I look them up, and I learn about the relationship between things like the number of Nicolas Cage movies and the number of homicides <laughs> yeah, in the United States. Say, if you're a if you are a fan of uh, Monty Python, the Monty Python to um, uh, non-correlative or non-causational correlative charts that we're talking about is just a circle. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's it's incredible. But like, note that like these really important questions you just can't ask under the Florida, yep. uh, under the Florida law. So like, like, I honestly, I find it so baffling. I find it incredibly baffling that anybody could could look at this and go, you know, we don't really need to know why, <laughs> and be like, and that's gonna turn out well. I mean, that's, this is, this is, this is like one of my favorite books, The Color Mm -hmm. of the Law. Um, But uh, the thing that we're talking about is the exact thing that has allowed like Republican or conservative um, like hate campaigns to happen. Like, for example, um, the, the sort of perennial hand wringing, fake hand wringing about single black mothers um, and broken homes or whatever. Well, uh, under welfare law, you get less money once you're married. You know what I mean? I like, say, yeah, I didn't know that. Right. Like, or I, I used to live in a very, very poor neighborhood. Um, and we had a, um, we buy you fry, um, on the corner. And I didn't know what that was. And I went in there to just like get some fried fish. Cause it sounded good. And he said, are you going to be paying by EBT? And I, that is when I like looked that all up and I was like, holy fucking mm-hmm. shit. Like, only when you encounter this stuff, like I, you can't you, buy prepared foods with food stamps. So yeah, so no reason, rotisserie chickens even. But you buy the raw chicken and you yep. bring it to the place who then cooks it for you. Yes, you can buy it there and then you pay what's called like a frying fee, and it's usually yeah. like fifty cents or a dollar. Um, but without these questions of why, you know, you you could say like, oh well, all these single moms just want to raise kids in broken homes, like. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's all, all of the racist hate campaigns that I grew up with, which is like public housing was made by Democrats to like trick black people who are too poor to buy their own house. Cause they don't want to, cause they don't want to work hard, you know, to like mm-hmm. win their vote over with free stuff. I mean, this is the, the level of bullshit that I grew up with. And then you go to fucking college and a smart person is like, you know, shit doesn't fun fact, shit doesn't happen in a vacuum. <laughs> and you start unpacking that and you're like, yeah. oh, goddamn. Like even some questions that a child might ask you is like, why is the railroad here in this <laughs> yeah. city? Yes. Why is the railroad done through this part of town and not this other? Correct. Without something like critical race theory, without something like studying history, we're examining issues of the intersection of race and law. And in this case, you know, urban planning. You literally cannot answer that question with any level of accuracy. And yep. you wind up with situations, I think, honestly, that like 
part of it is like I get some people I got accused once by a coworker who had a law degree, which I thought was weird, that I overthink everything. Oh god. I don't rely enough on common sense. And um which is like fucking shoot me. Um uh, because <laughs> like if the law is one thing, it's like the opposite of common sense. Um but like the reason I overthink things and I ask questions like this is because often the common sense answer is like, why are incarceration rates higher for African-Americans than the white population? The common sense answer in some areas is like, because black people are inherently more violent. Right. Right. It's a reductive, stupid, and just flat out wrong answer. Or even something that might be more nuanced, which uh, you might see in like the bell curve. Why do non-white populations uh, nationwide score lower on IQ scores? than white populations on IQ scores. And the conclusion that the common yeah. sense conclusion by racists cause those people are intellectually inferior. Right. Which, not, is, which not, is not true. Not that we have an entire field of study that proves that you can have literally 10, 20, 50 point jumps in these tests by changing a little bit of the phrasing so that it is in, for example, like AAVE or, um, uh, they did, there's a, an, I'm so sorry to keep plugging this, but you're wrong about did a great study about Ebonics, the quote unquote Ebonics controversy. And that it started with the, um, it actually started where else in Scandinavia, where there are a lot of little like um, villages and like people who have local um, uh, accents or um, local language. And they found that for, for a long time, they would just scream at kids and say, that's stop, say, stop speaking like that. And then they found out it was actually a lot more successful. If you're like, Hey, you know how you say that? Like a lot of other people say it this way. And that's what that means. So you can use either one, you know, whatever. Um, and, and because of the racism, it got turned into, they want to teach kids Ebonics that like they want to make Ebonics or AAVE as it's now known, like into like a, a language and it's not, which first of all, it is because languages uh, all have grammatical rules. They convey meaning like AAVE checks every single one of those boxes, die mad about it. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, because that relied, that narrative relied on it again, a lack of critical examination a lack of nuance. Yeah. And if you can't like, and the thing that bothers me here is that particularly in just the academic sense is that you will only be allowed to put forth the bad answer. Yeah. The academics will only be able to study the bad solution because the tools necessary to come up with a better answer. I'm not going to say right. None of them are perfectly right, but a better answer that's closer to the truth is would literally be prohibited by law from either being studied or taught. Yeah. Like, we can, we can say it in the most neutral terms, a more complex answer. Yes. That takes into account l more factors, more ways of knowing. And I, I can yeah. say like, I always talk about like modalities of knowing, like I talk about um, like, I think that a lot of times epistemologies matter a lot, like the ways in which we, we understand the world, the ways in which we construct meaning, like a lot of questions, disputes we have are epistemological disputes. Like what is actually an accepted way of making knowledge? Like is, uh, uh, uh the personal experience of a disabled person, right? Is that, uh, something that's worthwhile, uh, a worthy foundation of knowing the world or not? Right. Um, 
And like in philosophy, like there's a major problem that is basically a whole bunch of white dudes arguing with each other in philosophy. <laughs> right. And so you can imagine, and then you can come in and be like, yes, obviously the field is going to be limited because it's drawing from the experiences and knowledge and, and, and social mores and customs of this very specific group of people. Yeah. And unless we can actually explore that note that here you could, you can't even point that out as yeah. part of hiring decisions in Florida being yeah. like, you know, the, the field is being limited by the practitioners. So we need to open up the pool of practitioners so that we can open up different modalities of knowing, like you can't even suggest that <laughs> under <laughs> the new Florida law, which is nuts. So crazy. And think about the students who will go in and they'll go to the philosophy department. So like, I guess this field isn't for me. Yep. I mean, in Crete, like this is, we always talk about what the end goals are. That is the end goal, which is like to drive, you know, there is nothing worse as the Republicans have found out there was nothing worse for their uh, long-term sustainability than a bunch of really intelligent young people going to college and learning that there aren't that many differences between all of us. Um, so if the only people that you send to college at this point become increasingly like white men and white women, and I would say, of course, more dominantly white men, then what you're saying to people is, you know, if, if you live in Florida and you're a Florida resident and you don't belong to that identity group and like the kind of only chance that you have of going to college is to be able to afford a state school, like just don't go, just don't go, don't change your station. So I'm going to plug uh, a scholar I know personally. Mm -hmm. Her name's Kate Schmidt. She's a PhD, uh, philosophy PhD from WashU. And I was lucky enough to participate in a roundtable discussion of what of, of part of what eventually became her dissertation. It's called Epistemic Justice and Epistemic Participation. Basically, it, who gets to participate in making public knowledge and who isn't. And the reason I bring this up is that her idea of epistemic justice is the inverse of what we would call epistemic oppression. Yeah. Basically, in ways in which we prevent certain people or certain classes of people from making participating in knowledge making publicly. And this is an, a great example of epistemic oppression because the people who are most likely to make this type of knowledge about critical race theory, critical gender theory, pointing out these sort of structural injustices and harms are going to be drawn overwhelmingly from the classes of people who suffer that type of oppression. Yeah. Right. It's going to be women. It's going to be minorities. It's racial minorities. It's going to be sexual and gender minorities. It's going to be uh, people who 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 who've come from economically uh, disenfranchised portions of the population and areas of the country. And by banning these areas of study, they are preventing this knowledge from being made. Right. And thus preventing this knowledge, these people from participating in their wholeness in society, in saying, no, this is a legitimate way to understand the world. This is a legitimate way and a morally and ethically important way for us to grapple with reality. Yeah. And then for the students saying, you're not even allowed, you will never have the opportunity because we won't even let you know it exists, <laughs> which is like the worst thing. They, they don't even let you know that you could know these things 
because it won't be on this it won't be in the syllabus it won't be offered in the course list you yeah. won't have any professors who study it that if you think your experience your way of knowing that disagrees with us is valid well the state says it's not the state the state says it's not i mean this is i underneath learning about oppressed people right underneath that and violence is stories about oppressed success and um to me that this is ultimately what this boils down to is like there you know florida is actually has a tremendous history of um of freed slave um homesteaders that go and would like tame the land and like it's it's a pretty interesting story about um you know people who kind of did it for themselves starting with almost nothing and the fact that like they can't talk about the oppression means they also can't really give a full story to those tales of success of of um uh what's the word perseverance of like you know gutting it out as the most like oppressed person with the least opportunities because the story ending with, and then a white mob burned the town down. You know what I mean? There, you can't have that first story of like what happened to those people without the, and then the Ku Klux Klan came yeah. and burned the whole town to the ground. Yeah. And it's because people are like, well, you should against this is the rhetoric against critical race theory. It makes white kids embarrassed about their race. It makes them Good. feel ashamed. And I'm like, you're prioritizing <laughs> shame over injustice, yeah. over the injustice itself. Uh, by the way, I don't, I just want to say like the idea that it makes racist feel shameful is like, that's your conscience working perfectly. That's yeah. like everything doing everything it's supposed to. Secondly, like I understand what they're trying to say because I used to feel this white guilt stuff, but that's because we didn't have a sophisticated enough conversation to talk about anti-racism. But mm -hmm. now that I'm plugged into anti-racism, I don't have any use for white guilt. You know what I mean? Like it, that's a, that's a worthless feeling to me because what is the whole point of sitting here and feeling guilty when I can just participate in reversing the stuff that causes white guilt? Thank you. No, no <laughs> I could not say it better. Thank you for that. And that's exactly it. It, it doesn't, and I can say, it doesn't just harm people of color. Sure. It, it harms us. It doesn't just harm sexual and gender minorities. It harms everybody. Yeah. Even if they think they're not being harmed, they are. Right? Because they'll never be able to heal. They'll never be able to accept other people in their fullness and be accepted. Um, sorry, I have a very grumpy bulldog right now. But... Um, <laughs> That's going to, we could go on this. I think we can do an entire, we can do an even deeper dive into these types of bills because Florida is not the only place, yeah. but that's for another day. Um, so in the next one, we have the last one coming up in our, what the fuck is wrong with Florida uh, yeah. series. Uh, but this has been the Perpetual Stew. I'm Matthew Goodman. And I'm Sarah Merle. And until next time, stay curious. Bye. <laughs>